Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It is mid-October of what feels like year seven of the coronavirus pandemic. Fall is here, the leaves are falling, the sky is gray, and skeletons and other symbols of death are popping up everywhere. Oh, whoa, let's not go down that road. Let's talk of happier things instead, such as what historians are up to. Today I'm talking to Karen Sieber, a humanities specialist at the Clement and Linda McGillicuddy Humanities Center at the University of Maine. Today we will talk about Karen's academic and professional background, her major public history projects, her work at the Humanities Center, and a handful of really cool recommendations. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Karen Sieber, and I'm the Humanities Specialist at the McGillicuddy Humanities Center for the University of Maine. That's, that sounds like a really interesting position. I'm looking forward to talking more about that. Before we get to it, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, I came to academia quite late. Uh, I worked for 20 years in restaurant and retail management and went back to college in my 30s to become a historian. Uh, so I did my undergraduate at U at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, double majoring in American studies and urban history. Uh, and then I continued on at Duke University in nonprofit management, and then got an MA in public history from Loyola University in Chicago. And what research projects were you involved with along the way? You said that you focused on urban history and then later on public history. What were your uh, research projects? What did that involve? Uh, I actually got started professionally quite early. So before I graduated, um, ended up working for the university uh, for the Digital Innovation Lab at UNC, um, which primarily focused on digital history. So I ran a project, um, it was in the South, um, and there's a town just a few hours west of Chapel Hill called Gastonia uh, that years ago was uh, the largest cotton mill manufacturing uh, town in the United States. Uh, and so I ran a project for them uh, going through historical records and mapping all of the different mill workers that lived in this cotton mill village uh, and all of the information that I could get on them from census records and city directories and, and other historic documents uh, and ended up creating digital exhibits for this mill that was undergoing a renovation at the time, kind of being turned into a mixed-use space. And so I worked with a team uh, to create not just digital exhibits, but physical, physical exhibits within the cotton mill itself. Um, and so that was kind of my early foray into public history. Um, but I've done everything from working in historic preservation to exhibit curation, uh, done some historic research for some PBS programs. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate that that my experience in public history is quite well-rounded. Towards the end of my undergraduate degree, I ended up getting uh, a large uh, grant to create the world's largest archive on the Red Summer Race Riots of 1919. And so I ended up using that money to travel around the country and collect historic documents related to uh, to the Red Summer, which was, uh, there was three dozen race riots that happened in a short six-month period in the United States that year. Uh, but very little has ever been written about it. Uh, and 
an even smaller amount has been collected in archives. Um, because the riots happened in dozens of different cities, um, there was no continuity between the collections. And so there was you know, a handful of documents in one city and then one or two in another. And so I ended up collecting all of the documents uh, to create a digital archive where someone could go to one location uh, and do research on these race riots. And so in a six-month period, collected over 700 historic documents related to these race riots. Uh, and they're now built into a digital archive that is filterable. So depending on what your research interests are, uh, you could look at you know local government's reaction to the race riots. Uh, I have poetry written on the race riots, photographs, telegrams. Uh, so if you're a legal scholar, there's court documents. If you're really into political history, there's uh, political cartoons from the time. Uh, I really wanted to make it a comprehensive archive in hopes that it would be a resource, uh, not just for historians, but for students and, and the public as well. And so that has turned into something that's now used nationwide. Uh, I've had over 200,000 users, uh, and it's used in classrooms across the country to be able to put these historic documents right in students' hands and let them uh, see the interconnectedness between the riots and also the similarities between race relations today. And where is that uh, database housed? Which website is that? Uh, it's visualizingtheredsummer.com. And so there's the interactive archive, but there's also a map. So you can see how these race riots were distributed across the United States. Um, the map is also filterable. Uh, so you can look at different instigating factors for each city's riot. Uh, you can compare rural riots to urban uh urban reactions to, um, to a variety of factors. Um, some of the riots were caused by labor relations. Others were um, kind of vigilante justice, uh, large white mobs that were often attack attacking African-Americans. Um, and so the map lets you kind of spatially look at how these riots um, evolved over the six-month period. And then there's also an interactive timeline. Uh, so you can see how it built day by day, week by week over the summer and how it kind of escalated at the height of the summer. So that's really interesting because uh, I tend to think about Red Summer as the, you know, the anarchists or socialists, but it really, I imagine that was kind of an opportunity for a lot of people to air a lot of grievances and to attack a lot of different people. As you're saying, there's racial components. Um, and so it's really interesting that it's actually a fairly complicated phenomenon um, that, and I think that's really interesting that nobody had really gone around and put to put all those documents together in one place before. So that sounds really cool that you've done that. So bravo. Thank you. Yeah, there had been a lot of city-specific research, or not even a lot. There had been a handful of city-specific research. So there was a book on the Chicago riots. There was a book on the Elaine massacre. Um, but no one had ever really looked at the summer as a whole and the interconnectedness of the riots. Um, so that was something that uh, that I was quite interested in. Um, there's, you know, I think nowadays if people go to the internet and do a search on something, and they can't find something initially their opinion is that there's nothing out there, but in reality, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's what do archivists and, and holding institutions prioritize as far as digitization. And so there was hundreds of historic documents out there, but no one had made it a priority to actually get those up online and available. 
and searchable, let alone, you know, a comprehensive archive that that was collecting documents from numerous locations. Yeah, that's an issue that we run into uh, in the in our capstone courses also is that there are a lot of students, especially uh, at my institution, which is online, there's a lot of students that try to focus purely on online sources. And it's kind of a constant struggle to get them to understand the idea that no, you have to go beyond what's just available online. You're, it, it may end up re- requiring you to go actually to a physical archive somewhere to find the the data that you're looking for, the sources that you're looking for. Because the worst thing ever is to write up a, a major research project using only the sources that you found online. And then somebody comes back at you later and says, hey, wait a minute, you completely ignored all of this physical stuff that was available at this repository that completely refutes what you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to be thorough in your research, you have to do your due diligence to make sure that you're looking at everything that's available for your topic, not just the stuff that comes up easily through a Google search, because there, there could be a lot of great stuff out there that isn't represented on Google. So it's, it's uh, so I, I am very happy whenever I hear about archivists bringing stuff online, but I, it also always makes me wonder, you know, what, what isn't being digitized and what else is there out there that we're not able to see without actually physically going to all these places? Yeah. You know, it, it saves a lot of legwork uh, rather than having to, you know, I, I spent 7,500 miles on the road uh, in a summer collecting all of these documents from over two dozen institutions. Uh, you know, and for someone else to do that legwork would, would t- take quite a lot. And now someone can, you know, from their couch at two in the morning, uh, discover all of the same documents. Uh, there was, even though there was no institutions that were really making it a priority, there was nothing proprietary about the documents that did exist. Um, because all of them were created before 1923, it wasn't that there was copyright restrictions for any of these items. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of a rogue journey on my part to, to photograph these archival documents and make them available um, because there was really no reason why it, it shouldn't have been. Oh, I was I was uh, kind of laughing at your idea about the rogue. You, you know, you're doing this kind of this rogue journey looking for <laughs> sources and all that. that Maybe think of the Indiana Jones type <laughs> historical crusade or something. Um, and so this sounds like a really cool project. And I will put a link to the project in the episode notes for, for this uh, interview once it goes live. Um, cause it sounds like a really cool resource and I was unaware of it. And so I'm curious to go, I'd probably go take a look at it since we're done talking here. Cause I'm curious to see what's there. So you've been working on, so that sounds like it's been one of your, your major projects. Have you been involved with any other major uh, research projects over the years? Yeah, uh, quite a number. So after, and about the same time was when I was working on that project on the Lorraine mill, um, which, which itself was, uh, very historically significant, um, location in labor history, there is uh, a well-known, well-known strike there that occurred among the cotton mill workers. Um, and around, still before I graduated, I also got involved with a local historic preservation group in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and I shouldn't even call it a group. It was actually one man, uh, a man named Gary, Ke- Gary Keeber, uh, who Living in a town like Durham, which was going through kind of a revitalization, um, it was, you know, a former industrial town that had been, you know, most of downtown had been abandoned for a good few decades. Uh, And so he became concerned when a lot of the historic buildings in town 
were being demolished, um, to, you know, to build new high rise condos and, and that sort of thing. And so I became involved with Gary um, documenting all of the historic properties in Durham. It started first as just kind of an architectural database, um, you know, the year that buildings were built, the architectural style, um, if, if it was on the National Register, any information that, that we could glean from those documents. Um, but it ended up turning into far more than we ever could have imagined. Uh, so it's had over a million visitors at this point. There's 40,000 buildings that have now been archived. Um, and while our intention initially was from just to have a record of these buildings and what was where as they were disappearing so quickly, um, we made it open to the public and let them create their own added information to these records. And so while what we had started with was architectural, what the public was able to add to it was just amazing. Um, you know, this was the location where everyone would go have their first date or this was, you know, the meat shop that had sawdust on the floor and I can still remember the smell. You know, it these human memories of place. And so that got me involved with a number of different historic preservation projects, not just in Durham, but uh, other cities as well. I'm currently working on finishing up a renomination of the Southside Cultural Center in Chicago, um, which has been on the National Register uh, for over 40 years at this point, but the initial um, nomination and and report that was written up was very sparse. Um, it was really just two or three pages. Um, it had the very basics about the building, um, but this is uh, right near Jackson Park where the new Obama Library is going to be built, uh, and so there's concern as to whether this building will be affected at all. And so um, I'm working right now to update the records about this place um, and kind of extend the National Register um, listing for the buildings that are that are on this campus um, to make sure that if, if something does happen to it in the future, that there's a record of this remarkable place. I've been working with this PBS channel in Chicago called WTTW, uh, doing historic research uh, on a series of programs that they are doing called 10 That Made America. Uh, there's 10 streets that made America, 10 buildings that made America. Uh, and for me, it was interesting as a public historian to, um, to look at the way that these big ideas are kind of broken down into smaller, more manageable components for the public. Uh, and so that was... Uh, you know, sometimes it would be spending hours of research to be able to determine, you know, something that would end up a single line in this television program. Uh, so it was interesting to see how much research or how important it was for this program to really make sure that uh, that the context and the historical research behind it was, was strong. Um, but I've curated a number of museum exhibits across the country. Um, most recently with the Museum of Durham History in Durham, North Carolina. Um, there's a community there called Haytai, H-A-Y-T-I. Um, it was actually named, it was, the community was founded by African-Americans right after the Civil War. Uh, and they named it Haytai um, 
inspired by the revolution in, in Haiti and it's their own unique spelling of it. Uh, but at the time it was one of the largest middle-class African-American neighborhoods in the country. Um, it was really a place where, especially in the Jim Crow South, where people could go to do everything from, you know, grocery shopping to go to, go to see an African-American doctor. Um, there's black owned businesses, industries. It was really a thriving community, but it was all but demolished. Um, 95% or so of the neighborhood was demolished during urban renewal. And so I was able to work with the Museum of Durham History curating an exhibit about this neighborhood. Um, and, and really, you know, there's a handful of people still left in Durham um, that have become kind of the history keepers for this neighborhood. And so being able to, you know, build off of their knowledge and experience and, and the ephemera that they had been collecting, you know, in their, in their basements and attics and, uh, and be able to showcase that to the public. I think in a city like Durham, that's changing so rapidly, it was important for us to make sure that, that this place was known. Uh, A lot of people have heard the term black wall street and they associate it with Tulsa. um, But there was another black wall street in Durham, um, some of the largest black banks, black insurance companies, um, not just in the South, but, but nationwide uh, were centered in this neighborhood. And now the neighborhood is, is mostly a highway. There's, you know, some parking lots. It was, it's, really just bits and pieces of this neighborhood that are left. Um, the Durham Bulls baseball park, uh, which now most of most Durhamites go to at least one, you know, one game a year, if not more, um, was, you know, the site of former schools and former worker housing. And um, so we just wanted to make sure in, in such a rapidly changing landscape um, that people were aware of, of what was there before and so that was quite a gratifying uh, project to be involved with. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've, there's, I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, and there is a neighborhood in Columbus called Hanford Village, which was the first uh, African-American suburb uh, for Columbus. And it developed in the early 20th century. Uh, and it had a very high level of um, African-American homeownership. And it was based, or it was because it's close to um, an old Air Force base on the south side of town, Rickenbacker, which at one point had um, uh, some Tuskegee Airmen based there. So it has this kind of this long, kind of uh, interesting history. And it had the same problem where, like you said, in the 1960s, 1970s, as they built the interstate through Columbus, they built it straight through that village. And so probably half of the village got destroyed to make room for the for the highway. And in some cases, there were a couple of streets where, you know, the street starts on one side of the highway, ends at the highway, Mm -hmm. and then picks up again on the other side of the highway. So there's like three houses on one side of the highway, and then, and then maybe four or five on the other side of the highway, but there's no way to get to them unless you you do this big loop around the, through a, you know, through an underpass or something, which is a, which is down the roadways. And so it's, it's, the development of infrastructure and highways, interstates and all that was hugely destructive for some communities. And so we had that a similar situation like that here in Columbus. Yeah, really across the country, you can see evidence of, of similar things happening, communities that were really bisected like that, um, which, you know, the 
the main streets of these communities, the churches, the schools, you know, the roads could have been built anywhere. And there was definitely a concerted effort um, to build it through these neighborhoods. Um, there was uh, African-American gentleman in this community of Haiti, um, who his family had owned the same business for, for generations. And I always think of something that he said, um, said, well, it wasn't like they were going to build it through the rich white people's backyard. Um, which really says something that, that even though it was this independent thriving community, um, that, that still they were looked at as, as less than, you know, there was, there was poor white workers housing that was really just right up the road that easily also could have been, um, used as land for these, for these interstates, but it was, generally the African-American communities that were the ones that were demolished uh, in the name of, you know, progress in, in air quotes. <laughs> oh yeah. That, and that's certainly true in, in the instance I was talking about because you had um, before the highways were constructed, you had Hanford village, the black uh, community, and then literally right next door to it uh, just to the East is uh, a, a other suburb called Bexley, which is a very upper-class white uh, community. And when they built the highway, uh, even though they were directly, you know, they're like this on the same latitude line, mm -hmm. the highway cuts through the, um, the, the black community curves to the South so that it can go around yes. the white community and then arcs back North again, and then heads back and then to go out to the East. This is interstate 70 that I'm talking about for anyone that happens to know the geography of highway 70, but it's weird when you're driving on it because you think, wow, why is it making this weird little loop to the South? And then, and then it goes back up to the same latitude line and keeps heading out further East. And well, the conclusion you can really only draw is that they wanted to route it through the black community while avoiding the white community. Mm -hmm. And then the highway could, could proceed onward. So it's even if looking at the map, you can see that there's a, um, there were some very deliberate choices made there. We can to put it diplomatically. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've been really interested in or involved in a lot of really interesting projects. So let's talk about how you kind of got to that stage in your career. So when you went, when you were in college and you were getting your various degrees, when you first graduated, how did you kind of break into the history game? What, where, where did you look for, for work and where did you start working? And then we'll kind of work our way to your current job. Yeah. And, I actually lucked out and was employed before I graduated. Um, the Museum of Durham History that I mentioned was in its infancy at, at the time. I was really still just in the planning phase. Um, and I, you know, I think coming from a background in business and, and roles of authority that, you know, I don't think that I had the same fear that a lot of students had of making my voice be known and, and creating situations for myself. And so I think I was still a junior at the time. I think it was, you know, 38 year old junior, but uh, I ended up reaching out to this institution and said, you know, I realized that you're starting this museum, uh, you know, that had not previously existed uh, and really just offered my services to them. You know, I think I was afraid having so much experience in other areas um, of traditional internships. Um, I was worried that I would be, you know, taking tickets at a door somewhere or, you know, sitting in an information table. And I wanted to make sure that if I was gaining experience in this new field, that it was meaningful and useful and that the skills that I was 
learning would would not just benefit me on my CV down the road, um, but would also be beneficial to the institution. Um, and so got started with the Museum of Durham History. Uh, as I said, I think I was a junior at the time and ended up being hired by them uh, to curate a number of exhibits. One was this exhibit on Haiti. Another was um, on the Research Triangle Park. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's um, it's kind of the Silicon Valley of the South. Uh, there's a number of Fortune 500 companies that are located there, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, IBM, others. And so uh, also curated an exhibit about the history of this Research Triangle Park, which the reason that the area is one of the fastest growing in the nation right now is is due to uh, the tens of thousands of jobs that exist in this Research Triangle Park. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important to be an advocate for yourself and to to know what you're capable of and and to have an idea of what the skills are that you're wanting to learn. Um, and so, that was really where. Uh, where most of my public history experience stemmed from. Uh, and as I said, I had also been running this project at UNC, uh, mapping all of the cotton mill workers. Um, that also turned into full-time employment. And so I stayed on with them after graduation for a few years, um, working on other digital history projects as well. Um, and after going to... Uh, graduate school in our in my PhD program, we were not allowed to have traditional jobs because we were expected to not just study but to teach. Um, but we were able to pick up a lot of independent contractor work, and so that really sustained me for for quite a number of years. Was finding these smaller projects to be involved in uh, that were shorter term, um, you know, something that would be three months or six months. And really looking for those opportunities to to both be bringing in money, um, but also to be gaining new skills. And in graduate school, I, I ended up taking an internship at the Theodore Roosevelt Center, um, which is involved with a group that's trying to build a presidential library for Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and so what started as an internship has now, I think I've been with them for three years now working. Um, and so, you know, I work full-time at the University of Maine, and then I still work remotely for the Theodore Roosevelt Center, um, helping to digitize all of Theodore Roosevelt's papers, as well as other documents that are related to his life or to the people in his circles, um, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jacob Rees, um, you know, other people that were involved either politically with him or um, people that were in the progressive movement, um, Jane Addams and others. Um, he really had a fascinating circle of friends. And so um, that being able to work with them over the past few years has really also just given me a lot of experience kind of on the back end that you don't get to see of public history. So there's, you know, all of the metadata standards that get attached to uh, digital archival records and um, and I do research for them and outreach and um, you know if scholars are are writing the center you know we, we've had a, a number of books over the past couple of years that um, 
that have been written on Roosevelt's life and uh, they're using this digital archive um, to help tell that story, kind of similar to the Red Summer archive that I created. You know, we wanted to create kind of a one-stop shop of, of all things Roosevelt. Um, presidents since him, for the most part, all have presidential libraries, but uh, but very few presidents from, you know, before the 1930s, 1940s um, have presidential libraries yet. And so this was our chance to first build this digital library, but in hopes t- to make it kind of the the center, the grounding of a future uh, physical presidential library. And so that's, um, I've been very fortunate to have that work because it, it really sustained me, not just through graduate school, um, but for now it's, even though I get paid, it almost feels like a little hobby because I enjoy it so much. So can you tell us a little bit about your current job? You uh, mentioned that you were a, a humanities specialist uh, for the University of Maine. Can you tell us about that uh, that position, how you got it, and what does that job look like? What do you do in that position? Yeah, I've been with the University of Maine um, coming up on just a year now. Uh, it The McGillicuddy Humanities Center just started uh, two or three years ago. And so there's been kind of a humanities initiative on campus for a number of years. Um, But the McGillicuddy family donated money a few years ago to open this center um, because they really wanted to highlight um, the strength of the humanities on campus. Um, But they really recognized, too, how the humanities can be beneficial to the public. And so a lot of my job is involved with, um, I organize an annual symposium that's um, dozens of events throughout the year. Um, But we have guest speakers and lectures. We have a film series. We sponsor art gallery exhibits, concerts. Um, We really try to make sure that the humanities as a whole are are represented um, from from language and performing arts to, you know, history and uh, literature and really act as advocates for the humanities on campus and, um, and to make sure that the work that's being done is, is celebrated. I also get to oversee the work of uh, right now six, but soon to be eight undergraduate fellows. And so we, uh, it's one of really the better fellowships for undergraduates in the humanities nationwide. Uh, They are awarded $8,000 a year to do the independent research of their choice. Um, And so we have um, students from a number of different disciplines doing research on everything from the history of uh, the math book to we have someone else studying Plato, another student looking at Icelandic sagas. One of our fellows who's graduating right now is studying the work of Walter Benjamin and his arcades project. And so really there's, for an undergraduate to be able to, to not just uh, have a financial award to help with, to, to free up time for them to really focus on their studies rather than having a part-time job outside of school. Um, but for them, it's really a chance to find their voice um, and to learn more, to be able to have more time to really delve into research. You know, I think when undergraduates are really given the opportunity to do research on any topic 
that they would like, it's generally a very short-term project. There's only, you know, a few weeks in a semester that they really have to to piece something together. Um, and so for them, it's a chance to be able to work year-long on, uh, on something that they're really passionate about. And it, you know, provides them with really just great uh, real world experiences too of, um, like I said, being able to advocate for themselves, being able to um, to promote their research and talk about it in a number of different settings. So all of the fellows are required to share their research on campus, um, but we also encourage them uh, to, you know, submit to journals and to go to conferences. And um, it's they're really almost treated like graduate students and, and given the freedom to to really um, dig deep into into topics that they would otherwise not have the time or money to do. Uh, so it's it's a variety, you know. It's uh, a lot of my job is centered around event programming and and the fellows, but um, but a big part of my role is advocacy. Um, UMaine has very strong science programs. Um, and we just wanted to make sure that, uh, that people were well aware of, of how strong our, um, our humanities programs were on campus as well. And so for me coming from a background, um, prior to history, you know, I said my undergraduate degree was in American studies. You know, I, for me, I like to see the interconnectedness of the humanities as a historian, it's one thing to study, you know, the Great Depression, but if you can also look beyond the names and the dates and the politics to look at what kind of art was being created at the time, what kind of music was popular, uh, what literature w- were people reading, you know, I think having, I think the humanities help us better understand the human experience um, and connect to other communities. And so, for me, it was a chance to not just use my history background, <clears throat> but to really um, use the broad education that that I got at UNC um, to really celebrate the humanities and the power of the humanities. So it's it's been an interesting pivot for me. Um, I still get to do history work, but you know, for me, having the the extra variety of being able to interact with scholars at a variety of different levels from disciplines other than my own um, has been a great learning experience. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be really rewarding. And it sounds like a really great opportunity for those undergraduate students to kind of understand what life is like as a professional historian or, or related field. I think that's, that's really great. You, you've kind of been touching on things all along the way here. You've been touching on um, various tips and all of that along the way, but just to kind of sum up, what advice do you have for students that are, either in currently in history or history related fields, uh, either undergrad or grad, uh, what kind of advice do you have for them to prepare themselves for the workforce once they are out? Are there, do you think there are certain skills that they should be developing? Are there certain skills that they should be learning that are outside of the history courses or the humanities related courses? Uh, what, what, just basically just what, what general advice do you have for students that'll help them succeed once they get out of school and into uh, the job market? Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many great resources out there uh, for historians. Um, so I always tell students to 
spend a lot of time uh, on the websites of various organizations like the American Historical Association, the American Association for State and Local History, the National Council for Public History. Their websites really offer a lot of great resources for those getting started in the field, um, as well as job listings. And so I think when I was deciding after my undergraduate degree how much further I wanted to go and and exactly, you know, what path within the greater field of history I wanted to get into, I spent a lot of time on job boards, looking at job listings, what kind of bullet points were they looking for, what kind of experience, education, certifications um, were important to them, and then working backwards and finding what I could do to gain those kind of skills. Or maybe it was skills that I already had and finding ways of using the right kind of terminology and keywords to make sure that that my resume would move to the top of the pile um, to really showcase my education in a way that, that employers um, could see would be beneficial to them. You know, I think any history major is going to learn invaluable skills about um, you know, doing research. But I think there's a lot of skills that um, within the field of history that are not, in at least in most programs, are not um, are not something that would be part of the typical curriculum. Uh, and so I, um, you know, really on my own looked for opportunities to learn more skills in in fields that there were that there was growth uh, as in the job market. So um, digital humanities and digital history right now, any history major graduating, I would recommend to be able to gain skills in those areas. You know, I think a lot of people think that they're not, uh, you know, I, pe- people are technophobes. I think there's a misconception even among the youth of today that everyone is, you know, completely able that everyone's coding and everyone completely understands everything about technology. And it's really not true. I think uh, people at, of all ages um, often shy away from learning additional technical skills, um, in, especially in the digital world. And nowadays, there's really so many great uh, programs and tools out there that do the legwork for you. And so you no longer need to be able to know how to do GIS or you don't need to know HTML or anything. There's uh, wonderful programs that will help you with digital mapping, digital timelines, digital archives um, that don't require, uh, that that don't have a big learning curve to learn. Um, And it's one of the largest growth fields right now in the field of history and the humanities. And so I think anything that students can do to gain those skills um, <clears throat> are are quite important. You know, in today's world, any historical institution, museums, libraries, archives, um, it's necessary to be able to make that connection with the public uh, through digital means. And so, um, you know, I think those skills are, are always quite important. Uh, learning oral history, learning a little bit about historic preservation. Um, you know, I, I 
recommend students to spend a lot of time in archives, in museums. Um, look at how exhibit labels are written. Um, you know, dig into finding aids and archives and see how uh, see how documents are organized and how libraries are are taking these large collections and and making them usable for the public. You know, I think spending as much time looking at what is currently being done in the field to learn what skills would be beneficial for employers are uh, quite important. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I noticed that there was quite a lot of positions um, that were available on these job boards that had skills that no history program was going to be teaching. Uh, budgeting and project management and HR and uh, legal concerns for museums and archives. And so that's why I decided to go to the nonprofit management program at Duke University, um, because having those skills um, are quite beneficial um, to any historic organization. So if there's 30 people applying for a job that all have a history degree, that are all capable of, say, it's curating exhibits. The way to set yourself apart is to show what additional things you bring to the table. Um, so, you know, if you can somehow gain experience, whether through a traditional program or, or just on your own, in things like grant writing and fundraising and uh, project management and, and that sort of thing, you know, I think that's only going to give uh, applicants a leg up yeah, that's uh, that's that's great advice, and I think you're right that there is a lot of room for skills the students can learn outside of history programs that can be very valuable in the uh, in the workforce, especially business related courses it, like you said, HR budgeting. Uh, that's some uh, really good advice, and so I thank you for uh, uh, summing all of that up. Okay, well, thank you for all that information about the skills. So, Karen, uh, do you have anything to recommend for us today? Yeah, and you know what, I just recently led a workshop on Black digital history that focused on some different digital humanities resources uh, that students and scholars can use to better understand the Black experience. And so I just want to focus on a few of those that I think are really just quite remarkable. Uh, one of my favorites is the African-American Civil War Soldiers Project. Um, this has, is taking records from the U.S. Colored Troops, um, these were men that self-emancipated uh, from slavery and joined the Union troops uh, in the Civil War. And so there's a scholar named John Clegg, who's currently at the University of Chicago, who I've worked with in the past. Um, he digitized all of these um, like draft cards, basically. I mean, they weren't drafted, but they're the, the soldiers' records that have their name and where they're from. Um, and so he put all of these up on a website and actually opened it up to the public to transcribe. And so it's a really great experience for um, for classroom use, especially um, to be able to um, to add to the historic record and, um, and really make these digital resources searchable. Uh, another really fabulous project is Monroe Work Today. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Monroe Work, he was a sociologist that worked for the Tuskegee Institute. Um, and 
back and turn of the century and a little bit later, he ended up tracking racial violence. He was really the only one at the time looking at um, at lynchings and race riots. Um, and so this is all of his data that was collected, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, and it maps it all nationally. And so you can really see where these clusters of violence were, not just against African-Americans, but the lynchings of Native Americans and Chinese immigrants and Italian Americans. Um, so that's really one of my favorites. Um, but there's so many great resources out there that, that really work up into um, more towards the present. Um, so the Chicago Defender, all of their newspaper archives are now digitized. All of the green books um, that really allowed African-Americans to find places to stay and eat while traveling, all of those have been digitized. Um, all of the SNCC's records, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, all of their historic documents have now been been digitized as well. And so, you know, I really think um, you can Google um, Black Digital History or Black Digital Humanities, and a lot of these will um, will come up. But I think scholars these days are really finding these outside-of-the-box ways of, of talking about Black history. So even moving into the present, there's um, after the Charleston uh, church shooting, um, someone built a digital syllabus um, to better understand black history called the Charleston syllabus. That's publicly available. Um, someone else is currently mapping uh, police violence against African-Americans. Um, so really there's, there's still important work being done to make sure that things that are happening now are available to future generations as well. So I uh, implore listeners to um, to really start digging around into some of these really great digital history resources out there that help bring to life you know it's one thing to read about something you know in a in a text um, but to really see things visualized on maps or interactive timelines um, and to be able to look at the actual historic documents themselves really help bring to bring history to life in, in a different way. And so I, I hope that people will explore a little. Okay, cool. Uh, well, my, uh, the thing that I'm going to recommend um, is a book that I recently had the opportunity to interview the author of. It's called In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History by uh, Christopher Tomlins, who teaches at UC Berkeley. And this book is a, it's an attempt to kind of recreate Nat Turner, uh, Nat Turner's worldview, and to discuss the the massacre, of course, that Nat Turner was involved with in in uh, Virginia in uh, eighteen thirty one. I hope that's right. <laughs> um, and the problem that historians have always had with the Nat Turner Rebellion is that there's just not much documentation on it uh, because there was very little paperwork left behind. Really, all that was left behind was a short pamphlet published by a guy named Thomas Gray, uh, which is called The Confessions of Nat Turner, which was a description or a transcript of interviews that Gray held with Turner while Turner was in jail awaiting execution. And it's a, an account of the trial and tries to summarize the, uh, the events of the massacre where I believe it was 55 uh, white people were murdered by a, by a few dozen um, uh, slaves in an up in a rebellion. 
And uh, it's since this, that's really the only information that we have for it, except for a few newspaper articles, because the people of Virginia wanted to keep it quiet because they didn't want to in- inspire any other similar rebellions. So there wasn't much left behind. And so this book is an attempt to kind of re- recreate um, and it's filling in a lot of gaps, which is why it's called a speculative history, because we just don't know a lot of things. Um, there's been a lot written about Nat Turner, but all of the stuff has been based on just that one source, basically. And so this new book is basically a very deep reading of that one source where the author, uh, Christopher Tomlins, he looks into, you know, word counts and how many words are dedicated to one topic versus another topic. So it's a very kind of meta analysis of the primary source. But again, it's an attempt to kind of reconstruct Turner's worldview. It's not really an attempt to create a biography. It's more about what were the things that were driving him? uh, What were the the things that prompted him to launch this rebellion and and the author kind of puts religion at the center of all of it that turner this was not like a revenge type thing where he was trying to get back at white slave owners he really saw himself as a as as a someone who's going to free all of the um his fellow slaves and so it's an interesting book it's uh um it was published in i believe it was in march of this year and um so it's 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 interesting it's not a straightforward biography um and he's very, the author is very clear that there are some things that he just doesn't know. So he's inferring a lot of things, which is something that a lot of historians have done in the past, but they didn't really indicate that they're inferring things. They just present it as, you know, as truth. Whereas um, Tomlins is much more careful to identify the stuff that he doesn't know. And so he, it's a lot of conjecture. It's a lot of uh, kind of talk about what was religion like at the time. What were the ideas of people like Nat Turner? So it's an interesting book. I interviewed the author for the New Books Network. And so um, I will post a link to the book and to the interview with the New Books Network in the episode notes for this. So thank you for joining me today, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other podcast, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Karen Sieber, I'm Rob Denning. Take care, everybody.